0: This interview is recorded February 4th, 2022 at Combined Sections meeting in San Antonio. Today, we welcome James Carey to our interview. Dr. Carey is a professor emeritus in the division of physical therapy at the University of Minnesota. He received both his bachelor's and master's degree in physical therapy, as well as his PhD in kinesiology at the University of Minnesota. He did a sabbatical in transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. He has held PT faculty positions at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington, College of St. Scholastica in Duluth, Minnesota, the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and the University of Minnesota. He recently (laughs) retired from the University of Minnesota after 31 years, of which 19 were as director. His teaching focused on gross anatomy and neuroplasticity, and his research areas included stroke, motor control, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and functional neuroimaging. He has served as co-director of the Brain Plasticity Laboratory at the University of Minnesota. His accomplishments include authoring 65 papers in peer-reviewed journals, and being a Catherine Ruthingham Fellow of the APTA. He is the 2022 recipient of the Ann Shumway-Cook Lectureship, Translating Research to Practice, and later today will present his thoughts on difficulties, mistakes, accomplishments, and the future of stroke rehab. Welcome, Dr. Carey. Thanks
1: very much for having me.
0: Our pleasure. Go ahead. All right. So why did you become a PT?
1: Good question. I became a PT because at the time, back as a 19-year-old, as an 18-year-old I entered college and I had a, a career path that followed my dad's in business administration, but I don't know why I pursued that. I mean, because it was my dad, I guess. But I quickly learned that business administration is not what I wanted to do but I was into muscles and bones at that particular time in my life. And so I inquired in the physical therapy division there at that time that you know, what does it take to become a PT, what's it like, and, and so forth. And um, in talking to a couple of faculty, they convinced me that this is what I wanted to do. I mean, their, their description convinced me that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to help people, and if I could do it through physical activity, Um, then that would be ideal. And so I pursued it and was lucky enough to get in, and the rest is history, I guess.
0: Good deal. So your early research um, really started off in in stroke, a few other things, but stroke from the start, and then you progressed to considerable study in transcranial magnetic stimulation. So what drove your interest in stroke and TMS?
1: Well, the... Pursuit of stroke stemmed from my early clinical work. In the first five years of my career, after graduating, I had worked in an acute care setting, but primarily with, in people with stroke. And then I moved on to another center in the same region, uh, which was a an outpatient uh, neurorehab center that dealt heavily with stroke. So I just happened to like the idea of helping people with recovery of motor skills, not just walking, but also uh, use of the upper extremity. It fascinated me. I enjoyed when they improved. I was disappointed when they didn't improve. Um, I wanted to make it better. And uh, as I'll point out in my lecture later today, I was aware of the... Growing criticism of our profession at that time is in the mid-70s for an absence of research and so um, Although I had a little interest in it upon graduation it I didn't act on it Um, But then this extra stimulus in combination with what I was recognizing in the people with stroke "Hmm, Is there a better way to get more recovery? Um, I uh, I thought that I would uh, I would try this I, I was fascinated by the topic of, of some early writers um, that uh, the brain is yeah their neurons that are killed by the stroke, but there are other neurons that just become down regulated, mm-hmm. and if they can be resurrected from their dormant state, then there could be higher recovery. I was fascinated by that topic that was shown in animals and and it was just beginning to be shown by Steve Wolf in, in, in humans that it hmm, would be fun to pursue that, and so that's where I began and then uh, that evolved into um, the use of fMRI. Why? Because I just have to be lucky. Uh, I was at the University of Minnesota uh, where they had this worldwide center known for um, functional magnetic resonance imagery. They They had like three or four magnets at the time. Now they have like 12 magnets. And they're all dedicated to research. And you didn't have to compete uh, with hospital-based uh, MRI centers uh, where the patients get first pick, of course, because they're there to be diagnosed. This was dedicated to research. So I really had access to it and the help of those biophysicists and, and other engineers in how actually to do it. And so I incorporated that into my early work and showed that uh, there, there is some brain reorganization as a result of what we do in physical therapy, which was encouraging. But is there another way to get this brain reorganization maximized? And so then I started looking at TMS, because that was emerging now at, at that time. I contacted Dr. Pasqualione in Boston, and uh, I asked if I could come there for a short sabbatical, six months. And he said, sure. Uh, And and so I I went there and and learned the procedures and uh, struggled along the way at first, but gained some confidence. And he was a helpful advocate for me and research grants that followed. And we succeeded in getting, you know, the necessary funding to get my own equipment onto a new lab.
0: Excellent. So for those therapists listening that aren't familiar with TMS, can you give just like the little... uh, Wikipedia version of what it's doing. Sure. So
1: TMS is transcranial magnetic stimulation, and it involves application of a device that is handheld on the skull, and uh, when you know a certain switch is clicked, like with your foot, uh, it delivers a pulse of uh, electrical current through the coils that are embedded within this uh, stimulation coil resting on top of the person's head, and so an electrical current. Is delivered, and it's 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 an accelerating current, and it is, I don't know I'm not sure if any people remember the shortwave diathermy mm-hmm. that you guys do. Okay, you wouldn't, <laughs> but it involves this same principle of um, Faraday's law of electromagnetic induction, that when you surge an electrical current through a wire. Um, it emits a magnetic signal that goes perpendicular to the current, according to the right-hand rule. If you remember those physics days, and, and so then this electrical current sitting on top of the head creates a magnetic field that goes is invisible. You don't see it, of course, but it goes perpendicular into the skull, through the skull with no problem, and. Uh, if there's charged particles inside the skull, which there are in the form of these ions that we have, they can be induced to move in response to this magnetic field that they're exposed to. And then that electrical, that ionic current that is created, actually ends up as a stimulus to activate motor neurons in the region. So the point is that you can activate motor neurons that are within the skull on the surface. It, it penetrates about a couple of centimeters, uh, the the magnetic field, and in so doing, it can activate neurons that are on the surface of the cortex, which the motor neurons are, and uh, you can get a response that will twitch the hand, and you can study the excitability uh, of them as a result of intervention, you know, get a baseline value of excitability. How much current does it take to activate those neurons uh, at baseline? Okay, then give the intervention for perhaps a week or two, and then do it again and see if a lesser amount of current is needed to, to get them to be excited. So that's a, a simplistic way of stating how it can be used to study neuroplasticity.
0: So one treatment has a persistent effect, is that what you're saying? Well,
1: I, um, I think I said a couple, uh, one or two weeks of, of intervention. Oh, uh, daily? Uh, yeah, daily. So okay. it would be given, whether you'd get a response in a person with stroke after one treatment, doubtfully. Uh, I, I think it'll accumulate over time, a week or two of daily treatments. And then you redo it uh, post-test at that time, and hopefully discover that there's been a change.
0: So you mentioned Steve Wolf. So are you doing any form of constraint therapy when you study?
1: Actually, we did. Um, in a, my work I dealt with what was called finger movement tracking training, which was forced use, which is a Steve Wolf mm-hmm. phenom- phenomenon a principle uh, of Steve Wolf, is using forced use to help neurons upregulate in their excitability because they've been dormant from disuse by using the uninvolved sides for every activity in the world. But if you can force the, the involved side to be used again, you can lower, you can improve the excitability of associated neurons. All right. So I applied that with a finger movement tracking training device, first of all, Um, It was forced use, but it was at a single joint. It was repeated exposure to a a computerized task where they had to try and move their finger just the right amount to track a a target on the screen. All right. Um, And so that's how I was using forced use. But um, for a pediatric study that we did this TMS on, the training uh, also included um, constraint-induced movement therapy, And so there was a connection there Mm -hmm. uh, to what uh, he had been doing.
0: So I I heard you mention your tracking instrumentation. You have a patent on that, don't you? I do, yeah. Congratulations. Thank Mm you. Are people still using it?
1: Um, No. (laughs) Just me. No, it didn't go far. It did get a license with one company for a while. But then there were so many other virtual tools that became... Uh, so prominent over the years that I think the tracking thing uh, just uh, kind of disappeared uh, in favor of better uh, paraphernalia that could, be, that could be used.
0: Okay. So based on the title of your lecture this afternoon, which is uh, talking about difficulty, mistakes, and accomplishments in stroke rehab, can you give us a little um, short synopsis of maybe some of your difficulties and mistakes as well as your accomplishments?
1: Sure. The difficulties were, first of all, um, in recruiting a proper number, an N, uh, for, the st- for the studies that would be of, uh, of enough statistical power to show an effect. And there are so many criteria that need to be met uh, to uh, include them in the TMS studies that it made it, uh, for example... Um, I, uh, I did a study, and we got 213 people responded to an advertisement, to multiple advertisements, saying, yes, I'd be interested in participating. Of those, we ended up using 12, because so many of them didn't have the necessary criteria that were needed uh, to conduct the study. So that was a frustration. That was a difficulty that persisted all the way through my work. I was able to still succeed, but it would have been probably greater success if I had been in a clinical center where stroke was a prevailing diagnosis, that was heavily uh, situated in that environment, the University of Minnesota had people with stroke in the, in the medical facility that I was attached to, you know, as part of the medical school. But the big uh, stroke centers were ten and fifteen miles away. Uh, mm-hmm. This is still in the same city, but they attracted all of the. The, the great number of people with stroke and so I didn't have mm-hmm. access to those individuals which made it difficult.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that was one difficulty. Mm-hmm. Uh, other difficulties besides recruitment of an adequate population um, I guess uh, the uh, the other uh, problem was myself okay I, I guess I, I saw myself as a clinician that had converted into research. But I kept that clinician hat all the way through, and at times I felt inferior to all the science that was surrounding me at the University of Minnesota. Um, Biophysicists and engineers and biostatisticians that knew, I could do statistics, but not to the degree that um, was ultimately used. It was becoming more and more sophisticated than uh, what I had learned in graduate school. And so I, I felt that I needed the support of these other entities to accomplish the research goal that I had when, in my training, I kept hearing the word oh, you've got to be an independent researcher." that was what others were telling me at in my youthful age back then you have to be you have to be able to do it all and i didn 't want to learn i couldn 't learn how to program a computer to do this tracking. T- I just was not into computer science and so and some of the electrical engineering stuff, the same thing. So I felt inadequate, but at the same time, I felt I brought an important piece to the table, and that was the ability to interact with patients. And I could raise the question. I knew the question, whereas the scientist, the other scientists did not. They didn't know what spasticity was or some of the other associated problems that go with stroke. So I did bring uh, a certain amount of skill to the area, much like all the clinicians that will be in the audience today have, but perhaps they, too, have the same feeling that, oh, I could never do research because of the shortcomings that I have in statistics or in engineering, when, in fact, in the new world of academia, faculty development is so emphasized, at least it was at the University of Minnesota, and I'm sure it was at universities as well, that they want faculty to grow, and they're going to help people connect with other Uh, researchers that could pick up the gap that I don't fill they could fill and so it worked uh, is is the um, the the message here but it was a difficulty for a while and and, uh, I just kept reminding you're a clinician and you're bringing an important piece to this table just share the knowledge and grow from them and they'll grow from you which they did and they said that too
0: It's interesting because clinically, a collaborative model is the, the better approach, Right, and it's interesting that here you're doing a uh, research on a patient-focused model, and it, it didn't yeah. seem like at the time it wasn't In the beginning stages,
1: no, I kept remember hearing uh, a couple of my own department, one was an engineer who knew nothing about patients. Everybody <laughs> said, no, you'd be an, you have to be an independent researcher, Jim really? <laughs> uh, well, and I just disagreed with them and I, I pressed on and thankfully the program director at the time, his name was Jack Allison, uh, he uh, helped grease uh, the skids so that I could still accomplish the, uh, the, the needs for this research project that I was doing.
2: So there are going to be many clinicians listening to this, young clinicians, that will describe their questions just like you did earlier. I thought it would be fun, I believe, is what you said earlier when you were describing those early days. And that they share that. I think it would be fun to answer this question. Exactly. What advice do you give to those clinicians that want to dabble in research? Do they keep the clinician hat on? Do they, um, ha- how, do you have any um, insight into really? how you feel less inferior?
1: Yes, I, I think um, biting the bullet or just jumping into it after you explore which particular location might be compat- most compatible with your interests, uh, because not all places do neuroplasticity and some do cardiovascular and integument, so. So, but I wanted, you know, the, the neurological element, and, and so um, I. I I did what I've already said, so I won't won't go further on that. But my advice would be to pick a center where you think you would enjoy working with the science that is occurring there and the personality of the mentor that you would have there, the PhD advisor at that particular uh, center. Uh, And so that will take some exploration, some phone calls, and a couple of meetings perhaps to find the the one that is most interesting to you. Furthermore, uh, if uh, you're married, uh, that might be a difficult uh, add-on uh, to this to try and move the, you know, to move the whole family to you 1,000 know, miles away to hit the one center. Well, it may not be perfect, so you might have to pick a center that is local to you and just live with that, and that's okay too. Um, it just, you just make it work. You just make it work. uh, But to answer the question, do you need to surrender your clinical values uh, in order to become a researcher? No. I think that a person could retain clinical interaction on, like, a weekend, weekends. Uh, It's a full-time job uh, going through graduate school. Actually, it wasn't for me, because I was a faculty at the same time. Um, And I was fortunate to... To have a paycheck uh, to and also at a center where the university would uh, would cover the education in graduate school while I was a faculty and so I didn't have to pay tuition I had to pay taxes on the benefit <laughs> but that was, was mine so um, my, my point uh, is that there's a lot of different conditions that influence the success of Graduate school and finances is one, and, and the mentorship of the, the proper mentor is another, and the, the the amount of resources that exist at the center um, are all some of those factors. But do you need to surrender your own? No, no, because you were a born and bred clinician and you just want to probably continue that uh, in your career. And so, for your advisor to totally cut that off from underneath you would probably not be advisable, and and so I I think you could maintain some clinical involvement and pursue it through the question that you raise for your own dissertation. That might be determined a lot by your advisor, but hopefully the advisor would recognize the skill that you bring to the table and allow you to keep that clinical involvement into your research question.
0: So from your research, um, given that the emphasis of the lectureship is on translating research to, to uh, clinical practice, what have you discovered that can be or has already influenced clinical practice?
1: Thank you for asking the question, um, because that's an important piece of my presentation that comes at the end. I'll allude to it at the beginning, because the objective, last objective talks about, yeah, I want the researchers to do this and do that. But you clinicians out there pay attention as well because there is an avenue that can be used to allow clinicians who don't want to go to graduate school to become researchers but do want to implement the latest science. And there is a mechanism to off-label clinical services, and I'll describe it in the lecture, but the nuts and bolts of it, are this, and the Food and Drug Administration, I inquired with them. I'm not a physician, I'm a physical therapist. I've worked with you, um, I'm talking to the FDA, mm-hmm. uh, for 10 years in d- getting all the approvals necessary to do this in research. Can I move on to a clinical application through off-label clinical practice? The response was, yes, you can. And, and because there is precedent for it in use of RTMS by psychiatrists for depression, the use of Botox for spasticity started with off-label use, and deep brain stimulation for chronic for chronic pain, all included um, off-label uses while clinical studies were being performed. But so that setting that aside, off-label clinical practices were being formed. So I asked if I could. They said, "Go for it." And uh, so I went to the University of Minnesota, which was the medical school, all the way up and down the line. Yes, go, go, go. And so we started it, and I used it for two years. Uh, Thirty people were, I got referrals from the Twin Cities community, but also from a few out-of-state people that got wind of it through somehow, I don't know. And uh, the long and short of it is that uh, 13 people were admitted into it, because they didn't take anybody. They had to have certain criteria, once again, in order to have... I didn't want to take their money, because it was private pay. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't want to take their money, or the hospital where I was working didn't want to take their money if it wasn't going to stand a ghost of a chance of improving. So they had to have some motion in their fingers in order to be eligible. And so those that did, I took in. And uh, along with some of the criteria, they couldn't have had a recent seizure and that kind of stuff. but applied it uh, for the next year and a half, uh, individual by individual, and, um, and they improved. And I got videos, one particular case study that I'll be showing, um, that shows the improvement. And then she, we stopped the two-week treatment, and she there were normal activities at home, and she regressed. Mm-hmm. And so um, she asked if she could come back. So uh, she did come back. We did it again, and she improved again. And so we didn't want the same regression to occur, so then we switched to, um, after that second two-week period, we switched to one or two days per week instead of five days per week to help her pocketbook. But after three weeks of that, she said, Jim, I just can't afford to do this anymore. Even though we had a charity inclusion in this off-label clinical practice, um, she didn't qualify. She was married to a physician and it was not going well.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: and, and so on paper, she had the money, but in reality, she did not. Mm-hmm. And so she had to uh, sign off from it. And um, But the bottom line is that she did show improvement, and the fact that she didn't retain it entirely, in my view, does not discount the value of the TMS. It actually increases its value. Mm-hmm. It just shows that you need to have booster shots, much like what we're going through <laughs> now. <laughs> Yes, and so um, it was. It was successful for her. Uh, we communicate periodically now, and, and uh, perhaps she'll resume again sometime. But I, I, oh, I was going to conclude that thought was that I I was retired by this point, and my wife and I had planned on moving up north from Minnesota, uh, three and a half hours north, and I, I couldn't continue the practice um, right. from with that mm-hmm. distance, and so I did have to I did have to. Uh, shut it down, and because it there was, and I tried to get others to train into that role, but um, it uh, it didn't work. Um, what was
2: the limiting factor?
1: Um, the limiting factor. Nobody. I had a meeting that involved clinicians in the area. Okay, if you're interested in trying this as a clinical specialty, um, I can work with you and train you before I retire. And uh, you will be skilled enough to do this uh, on these patients, and if you have questions down the road, I can certainly come down and, and help. Um, but of the 20 people that came, no one uh, wanted to jump in. Uh, they, they, it was too much of a leap for them at, at the time. Mm.
0: Yeah.
1: So uh, I could see
0: that. Hmm.
1: Yeah, so somehow the message has to get out that it isn't as difficult as it might seem, the training isn't the same as a four-year or four- or five-year doctor program. Mm-hmm. It, it would be, you know, a couple... Well, actually, I'm not sure of the time, but I did attempt a, an acute study uh, in the, the hospital that gets all the stroke patients. I asked, okay, um, Abbott Northwestern Hospital, can I come there? And I had a relationship with them. Uh, uh, could I come there and do an acute, a study on acute care patients. Mm-hmm. After five days, um, they have to be at least five days post-stroke. And uh, they said yes. Long story short, they said yes. And uh, and so I trained two clinicians there uh, with the RTMS, and they learned it after two weeks uh, of training. I was going to supervise them anyway during the actual procedures, but they would be independent. I will just be outside watching. Okay. Well, after, after nine months of patient recruitment, the, the numbers of people with stroke were there, but they just wouldn't qualify. Um, oh. mm-hmm. uh, they, either it was a bilateral stroke, or it was a multiple stroke. They had one before, or they had a history of seizures, or they weren't interested in getting brain stimulation, uh, or they didn't have enough motion in their finger, which at least five degrees, and many of them had none, or mental confusion. Uh, temporarily at least, but at that time I said, no, I'm Mm -hmm. sorry, you don't qualify for a phasing. And so I ended up with only um, four people that qualified. Two went to the sham group, two went to the Mm -hmm. uh, real group, and they finished, wrote a paper on on the difficulties. The study was not analyzed because there were so few, but it talked about the difficulties of uh, doing this RTMS in acute care. But the two people who did get trained learned it and and were qualified to give it. Mm -hmm. So it can be done.
0: Mm -hmm. Is there um, any movement towards doing TMS in the home environment?
1: Great question. I think not. Um, Not TMS, because there is a risk of seizure, and to do it in the home environment is riskier than doing it in a medical place where they have facilities for uh, acute uh, management. um, If There is a seizure. And so, no, I never did experience a seizure. I've seen it on video from Dr. Pasqualeone, and we take all the safeguards, Um, that were quite liberal at first, I mean the procedures were quite liberal at first, high frequency, no, very little rest in between uh, trains of stimuli uh, have been modified to be much more conservative and so the incidence of seizure has considerably dropped off and I never did uh, experience any of my patients. Um, But So to do that, to do RTMS at home, would not be advisable. However, there's an alternative non-invasive brain stimulation that we're not going to talk about today because of time which is transcranial direct current stimulation, TDCS is the abbreviation, which involves placing um, ionophoresis electrodes uh, on the head and delivering electrical current uh, continuously, not surge through to create a magnetic field No, it's just on constantly for 10 or 20 minutes and that has an effect on underlying neurons that can either be increase in their excitability or decrease in their excitability. That could be done at home. And in fact, we did do a mini-study, uh, just a feasibility study on six people with TDCS at the University of Minnesota just before I left. And um, we wanted to see if it could be done at home. And so this, the Internal Review Board, well, we want it to be done on site first. So just use a practice room down the hall as the home environment while the tele rehab occurred from another office over here and just pretend that it's at home, we did that successfully. Mm-hmm. All right, then the for the next three patients, we did do it at their home. I traveled to their home while other investigators um, did the work through tele rehab on site. But I was there just minding the store in case there was a problem. There were never a problem, there was never wow. a problem. and so. It wasn't an efficacy trial. We didn't try to find out if it would improve, just was it feasible to do it, and was it safe to do And it was feasible. They all succeeded in completing the, the, the study, and they enjoyed it. And it, there was no pain or suffering at all. There was a little tinglyness that associated with the electrical stimulation, which always happens. But beyond that, there were no complaints. And so it would be feasible to do at home through tele-rehab. Oh,
0: wow.
2: It's exciting. Exciting. I, <laughs> exciting. I didn't include really that exciting. slide because I could
1: quick grab it and put it in, but I'm I already at the limit of time, so I, right. I better no. not. <laughs>
2: right. No, that is exciting.
0: So what do you think future uh, research yeah. questions for therapists and researchers need to be in terms of stroke stroke management and the future of our profession?
1: Um, future research questions who qualifies uh, because there are some individuals okay in the future research slide that i am going to show besides reference to dr kimberly's work which is very interesting on the vagal nerve stimulation i'll reference it very briefly she just presented on it yesterday so that'll stand by so um, i will talk about the connectome project and this project involves um, non this would be biophysicists in the mri centers Analyzing the brain for the magnetic resonance signal that is occurring at rest across the brain and Bottom line is this that there are widespread connections that are communicating with each other all the time mm-hmm. and the, an injury to one can have a far-reaching effect over here and the, they then I won't say the word use the word condemn but they they say that the one-size-fits-all approach that we currently use for measuring the effectiveness of a treatment is no longer tenable because there are individuals who have their own unique features mm-hmm. that don't register in the usual way of screening for individuals, but do register in doing some special uh, fMRI analyses um, that then cause the the emphasis to switch to the words that use individualized medicine or precision rehabilitation. Those are the quotes that I will be citing that they're recommending because the the group approach um, oftentimes fails, as it did for me in my own studies. I didn't achieve, some studies did not achieve statistical significance because of the variability between subjects and likely because of what I just described. Mm -hmm. So I think that is something to look for, uh, the results of these connectome projects and how interconnected the different parts of the brain are even though they're far removed from each other physically, they are connected physiologically and do impact. If the proper connection isn't there, if this particular individual falls short of that, it's a trait of theirs. And they may not be eligible for neuroplasticity because BDNF might have, might not be turned on in that particular trait that is um, revealed by this individual.
0: Hmm. Okay. So you have a very interesting um, course of, or record of research, as well as some presentations. And uh, we were very interested when we read your paper, uh, your essay in the PT Journal on your obligation to torture survivors. Oh, if yeah. you... <laughs> We found it. Uh, the calcaneal fat pad. The, oh, we uh, saw uh, it. Yes, we saw and read it. Uh, the Summons to Preserve Human Dignity. Um, So do you have an experience with torture survivors?
1: I did, I do. I did work for a couple years at the Center for Victims of Torture on campus at the University of Minnesota, but not part of the university. So it was a house that was up the hill from where we were, it was close. And so um, I got wind of it and volunteered there um, one uh, partial day per week for two hours uh, a day. And people who had been tortured from distant countries, although torture does exist in the United States, uh, it has been revealed in the literature, Mm -hmm. Um, um, these people did um, come to Minnesota, uh, to the United States, and and sought asylum, and um, many of them ended up staying and living in in Minnesota. And so they got wind of this center, and they came here for their care from a psychiatrist, like a psychologist, and nursing and so forth, and physical therapy. Mm-hmm. And so I did give physical therapy to those individuals. Typically, the complaint was chronic pain, um, and so uh, head and neck and uh, shoulders as well, posturally related uh, most often. And so we did uh, special procedures. Well, weren't special mm-hmm. in, in the clinical sense, but we did massage through the clothing. so that they wouldn't uh, react to being touched, you know, skin to skin, because that's where much of their torture had been. Okay, and so that was one difference from what would be normally practiced uh, in the hospital setting. And uh, another, you, you would not uh, walk behind them as you go to their the clinical room. Okay, it's time to go now, so we'll go to the room over here, and they didn't want to be walked behind. You would lead them, mm-hmm. and they would follow, but you wouldn't. Uh, walk behind. So, there were these other procedures that would be emphasized to uh, help decompress the tension uh, of the moment. And so that's what I did for a couple of years, and eventually I got so busy with other stuff that I had to. Well, actually, they moved. They moved to St. Paul. Uh, and, and so that was the final on the coup de grace. I, I couldn't afford to spend the time going to, go to St. Paul, so I didn't. And so I stopped, but yes, it was a mm-hmm. it was a, a worthwhile experience, and others have followed uh, that I got involved after me to fill the gap, and uh, it's still going on quite nicely there.
2: Wow! Yeah, you had also an interest in physical therapy in Niger. Is I did. that connected, or are they completely well, separate? In- well,
1: the person um, who got me involved with with Niger. Um, Said that uh, Jim, can I come to your presentation at the APTA state meeting? Um, Yes, I can come. That yes, you can certainly come to that. And says Jim, could you help me get involved in the Center for Victims of Torture? I said sure. We'll get you set up, and uh, they'll welcome you with open arms. And so um, he came on board, and uh, and he is still doing it actually. All right, but then he was going to Niger through his church, and uh, I was aware of that. I thought. Hmm. Tip for tat, can you help me get involved with going to Niger and doing some international uh, uh, helping of, of patients mm-hmm. and helping of students because we brought students with us to help them realize that there is a global uh, need for physical therapy and so we went to Niger which usually is listed as the lowest ranking uh, country in the world financially or economically um, and so we went there and uh, I think I went there ten times total, um, once per year, and as a team, and uh, offered education to the medical students because there was a medical school there, uh, of what physical therapy is all about. And uh, then there was a clinical uh, service that was right in the compound where we were, and so we they brought in patients and we gave them physical therapy, including people with stroke. Um, and then, uh, and then the student education uh, was was part of it where they could. Carry forward with this uh, idea of global health care um, and the mission to serve, and several uh, two students that I know of uh, came back after they graduated uh, to revisit Niger and one of them is still doing it about every other year, so it it did have an effect on on the students as well
2: What do you think is the direction of global physical therapy? I mean we have the World confederation and the world is getting smaller, where do you envision that going?
1: Uh, I, can, I think that it'll... COVID has not helped, um, mm-hmm. um, otherwise I would have... I was scheduled to go to Rwanda because... Okay, we're, yes. Where, where is this going? I think it's going to increase because I think that there's an interest among individuals uh, to serve. That's how we get into physical therapy including the international service scene. And so um, I I think that's the, the, the bottom line answer to your question. But I did want to, after I stopped going to Niger, why did I stop? Um, because, well, bottom line, it, it's a French-speaking country, and I didn't speak French. And so... <laughs> <laughs> we, we and it was all tribal languages too. Mm-hmm. So even if you could right, speak French, right. uh, you're, there were all kinds of other difficulties mm-hmm. um, with, with language, and um, and so I um, I inquired with the uh, health volunteers overseas arm. It's not an APTA. I uh, no, they're they're frequently at APTA meetings, mm-hmm. but it's a different organization: health volunteers overseas. And I offered my uh, service. And they said sure, but they have to be able to speak English. And so I was hooked up to go to Rwanda, and um, which is a it was a British colony, mm-hmm. and so they spoke English there by their original training of language. And um, I was supposed to go. And then three days before I was supposed to leave to go on site to do education of the PT students there, um, they they canceled the trip because of mm-hmm. COVID, mm-hmm. and so yeah. it, it never did happen. I did give it through Zoom though to the PT students there, and so that much was uh, satisfying. And um, I think the next one that I'm scheduled, it's not scheduled yet, is to do uh, in Nepal. So okay. to do, because uh, they speak English there, probably. I didn't know that, <laughs> but they do. And so um, that's being worked on now. Uh, so I, I guess I do think that as the country barriers break down, mm-hmm. Um, that uh, there'll be more uh, involvement uh, between countries, especially for those in most need.
2: And mostly, starting out, it sounds like your passion is in education, is going and talking to the the country's physical therapy students.
1: Yeah, I I feel I can have, well, my impact on one patient at a time would be small, Mm -hmm. but the impact of teaching the PT students that happen to be there would be larger. And so that's why... I, I would like to bring patients into the classroom and teach using the Grand Rounds method of, okay, here's a patient, what do you see? Okay, so evaluate the range of motion, this and forth, so forth, and, and, then, um, and then talk about it and have the patients learn with patient interaction on the side. Um, but to do it only as a clinical service would be too limiting in terms of, of having an outreach that would be maximized if, if I did approach the students. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, So you've had a lot of interaction with students and Mm -hmm. I think have been very thoughtful about making student experience successful. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice or thoughts about student success?
1: During an internship or after? um, um, Can you rephrase the question exactly? What are you looking for?
0: In academia, when they're in their actual clinical program. Okay. Uh, whether it's in this, this, the classroom or whether it's out in the clinic. There are students that struggle at different points. Yeah, okay. Points. Now, okay. Yeah. So
1: my advice, and what, and I was the director for a number of years, and I advise students who are in trouble with, I taught anatomy, and, and uh, I said, yeah, seek me for, for questions, or if you would prefer, um, on, on a more regular basis, to get a tutor from an upper-class person and ask them to help you pay them, if or if they want it, don't pay them if they don't want it. But get that uh, that knowledge from a person who's already been through the course, as opposed to sitting idly and just struggling and suffering and not sleeping and having other problems that stem from that. Um, to get the help that is needed uh, through other classmates, and too few people do that. Um, mm. And, and uh, that would that was one that I recommended highly. Uh, to, to students and most of them pursued it. others were too prideful and didn't want to have the help of other Students and so they they struggled they got through but um, it, it could have been better if they had just Interacted with students. Uh, here's what I interpreted from it, and I think this is what you should take away from uh, What Dr. Carey was just saying about this and and, and um, so then they they exchanged thoughts it takes more time; there's an extra uh, hour per day perhaps it involves this interaction with a tutor but his time's well spent. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sure.
2: Uh, you, you have a theme of a collaborative approach. Mm. I mean, that was the same answer you would give to a, a budding researcher.
1: Yeah.
2: Get help, right? Yeah. You're not an independent, you don't stand alone. Right. You know? that's,
1: that's very true. <laughs> yes.
2: It definitely works better as a team.
1: Whereas there are some that no, you got to be independent. Mm-hmm. I mean, this from the, the early on still sticks out in my mind. You know, mm-hmm. you got to be independent, do it all on your own. Uh, which especially nowadays it's just not the truth anymore. You do need to collaborate, right?
0: Mm-hmm. So now that you're retired, yeah. what do you do for fun?
1: Well, we did move up to northern Minnesota, which is three and a half hours north of the Twin Cities, into Lake Country, and so uh, we immediately tore down the old weekend cabin that was really old and leveled it and added a new cabin. And uh, so we now live in a brand new uh, cabin, log. Uh, it's half-log, uh, cabin up north uh, with a lake outside our front window And I fish less because I don't feel the need to. It's just right there. If I want to, I can. So I I actually fish less now than ever before. But, um, it's there. Ice fishing is possible. I just Mm -hmm. would have to walk out in the ice, drill a hole, but too much. I'm too lazy now. I, I just enjoy looking at it. And, uh, and it's very peaceful. Um, I did take up horse riding. I bought a horse because the dog that I wanted, I wanted a smart dog, so I looked at uh, a certain kind of dog. It was $3,000 for this uh, very intelligent dog breed. And I thought, oh, and then, I'll, I'll buy a horse instead, which was cheaper. It was almost half the price. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I discovered that horses are not pets. No. I, I, I got bucked off twice. Once, I broke my collarbone. All right, another time <laughs> I got kicked. I won't say where. Uh, and it hurt. It put me on the ground for 20 minutes. Uh, And so I still kept the horse, but then the owner of the property said, Jim, I have to ask you to get rid of the horse because I have to get rid of my horse because I'm going to change everything I hear. So I got rid of the horse. That was fine. Um, (laughs) And I moved on to the violin. So I had no history with the violin at all in my past, but I was still attracted to it. And so I picked it up, bought one, took lessons on Zoom for the past year and a half, um, and I brought it with me. It's in the hotel room now. Oh
2: wow! And
1: uh, you wouldn't? I wouldn't play for you.
2: Oh, okay. <laughs> no. I thought maybe at the end of your lecture. No, you no, no. Out I mean,
1: <laughs> I can play a few songs that you might be able to recognize, but uh, I, I, no, I, I struggle with it. But it, it's it's a it's a motor skill too. I mean, mm-hmm. just to get this yes. the right tone, a little feedback. You know, so you're tracking the proper deliver the proper sound oh. with what you're actually getting is wrong, so you adjust. So it, there's all kinds of motor learning <laughs> within right. this within this effort, but it's it's been a good experience, and uh, I love it very much.
0: Excellent.
2: brings new meaning to forced use. Well, that, that's <laughs> true. That's true.
1: Someone should have done an MRI before and after. But there we go. I still have a long ways to go, so the after isn't quite ready to, to be measured yet. So I don't have
0: any other questions. No? Yeah. All right. Well, we really appreciate we you meeting with us. You. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. So. Okay, uh, then thank you very much for, for having me. Um, thank you very much for, for allowing me to speak and hopefully help others through this process.
0: Oh, uh, like I said, we really appreciate you being here. Yeah. It's been a fun interview.